1: Last week, we were in uh, San Francisco for uh, AEW shows, and I did an interview with the local ABC affiliate with Casey Pratt, and he mentioned something about Alcatraz, and it ended up, long story short, that we took a trip to Alcatraz with the uh, sole purpose of exploring it and checking it out and kind of getting the vibe for it uh, to do a talk as Jericho, not just about the prison and the escape but some of the haunted elements to it as well with Jeff Dwyer's with us. He's more of the ghostly expert. Uh, so Casey, tell me uh, how you felt our excursion to the Alcatraz, uh, uh, park went national park. It is now.
0: I thought it was a big success, Chris. I think we rocked the rock is the way I put it. And, uh, <laughs> Getting out there was a lot of fun, but I didn't feel anything really ghostly until we got off that elevator in the hospital wing and I just felt that almost electric buzz. I remember looking over you and being like, do you feel that too? It was, it was pretty crazy up there. So Jeff, we we a
1: couple of weeks ago, I did a podcast from the Anderson Hotel in Lawrenceburg, uh, Kentucky, just outside of Lexington. And there's a real kind of weight that you feel when you're in this place. Like, you know, like as... Mm-hmm. As animals, as mammals, you, you can feel the instinct, like your hair is kind of bristling. And we felt that on, on the top floor in that hospital area. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say that?
2: Yeah, exactly. I feel the same sort of thing when I go to a lot of haunted places. I feel as though my body weight has increased three or four times. I can being pulled downward. And I weigh maybe three or 400 pounds instead of the 185, you know? Yeah. Uh, I also feel that electrical thing that we were talking about a little while ago, too, um, even in places like Alcatraz, where there's no power in a lot of, a lot of the places in Alcatraz, but you'll go in and you'll get that feeling like there's some sort of electrical field emanating out of the walls or the floor or something like that. Mm-hmm. But that heavy feeling is kind of freaky because it feels like you're being pulled downward sometimes.
1: Yeah. And, and like like you said, you just like, if I spent too much time there, I'd be like, okay, I got to get out of here. And it's just in that area. When you go back downstairs again, it goes away. So there's mm-hmm. certain areas of different places that, that have, I guess, more activity. And we'll get into that. But are you also not an expert, but very knowledgeable about Alcatraz as a whole, Jeff, not just the haunting part of it?
2: Yeah. I've been through the history of it quite a bit. Yeah. And it has a long history that goes far, far, farther back than the federal period, which was from about 1933 to 1963,
1: something like that. Let's talk about how far back.
2: You know, uh, there's archaeological evidence that the Indians were out there hunting uh, 10,000 years before the first Europeans showed up in 1775. Wow. Wow. Now, I don't know how archaeologists have found these things, but they've been able to date some of the seashells and that kind of thing out there. So, but when the uh, Spanish came into the bay in 1775, they were told the place is Devil's Island or Evil Island. So the Spanish really didn't do anything with it during the entire time that they governed California. When the Mexicans took over in 1820, they didn't do anything with Alcatraz either because they thought it was Devil's Island or Evil Island. And it's only when the Americans took over California in 1846 that the military decided it had value as a military place. So they started building a lighthouse out there and installing cannon and military facilities. And when they started doing that in 1850, of course, they had incorrigibles in the uh, the army. And so some of them had to be put in a guardhouse. So they built a guardhouse out there. And there were military prisoners out there as early as 1856.
1: Why were they calling it Devil's Island or Evil Island? They they felt there was bad spirits there, I guess?
2: I I suppose the Indians felt that there were bad spirits out there. And it may have been something to do with the dangers of the place because the currents around there are really nasty. The winds can be really nasty and it's desolate you get out there and uh, if you're stuck out there, there's there's not much you can do about it. Mm. And it may have been as, as fog shrouded and that sort of thing. And also the noise that the birds would make can be somewhat unsettling. It, it has been for me when I've been out there at night, especially on a foggy night, and the birds are flying around and screeching in the air. It just sounds like there's some sort of evil thing flying around, screeching at you. So the Indians probably experienced that. So they just named the place Devil's Island or Evil Island. But it's interesting that nothing was really done with it until the Americans came in about 1850 or so. It started building out there. And, of course, when they built, they built these guard houses, which eventually grew to incarcerate a whole lot of people in the 19th century.
1: Casey, you're obviously very knowledgeable as well about Alcatraz. So kind of tell us about the, the initial stages of, of, of why they started building this, pr- this prison out on – what's the official name of the island? Is, is, is it called Devil's Island? No, it was just Alcatraz, yeah. <laughs> okay, Alcatraz,
2: gotcha. Alcatraz, which which was a uh, Spanish word for pelican.
1: For pelican. Because
2: there were so many pelicans out there.
1: Wow, okay, gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense. So why did they start deciding to build a federal prison on this island, Casey?
0: Yeah, they had the military use out there. They they used it to protect the bay. They had up to 100 cannons out there. They never ended up needing to fire a shot. Uh, Jeff mentioned that lighthouse. That was the first lighthouse ever on the West Coast. And so while they started using it as a barracks out there, obviously because it was inescapable in many ways, they eventually ended up turning it into that federal penitentiary that we talked about and visited. And what's interesting, Chris, is if you look at the history of Alcatraz as a federal penitentiary, all the stories we hear about the Birdman and Al Capone and Machine Gun Kelly and and all these guys that were out there, you know, the big legendary stories, that place was only a prison for 29 years. It wasn't even open for 30 years as an actual prison prison.
1: And the reason why we we talk about it when you go inside of Alcatraz, they've got kind of the rogues gallery of of the worst of the worst, and it is Al Capone and Machine Gun Kelly and, you know, the Birdman of Alcatraz, even though he didn't have birds in Alcatraz. What was the Birdman's name again? Oh, Robert Stroud. Yeah, just evil Robert Stroud. So why are the worst of the
0: worst getting put into Alcatraz? Well, definitely the worst of the worst were going there because they thought it was a place – that they could limit everybody. Remember, we walked in there, and the one thing that jumps out is the cells are so tiny because they were all single occupancy cells. So these guys, in a lot of ways, were isolated by themselves there. Or when they were in the D block that we went to with the isolation cells, they were very well protected there. As a, as a prison, it was just the place where the people that got in trouble in prison ended up at that prison. The worst of the worst prisoners went there because it was incredibly impossible to get off. And many believe that no one ever escaped, but I do believe that some people did make it off that Island.
1: Well, and we'll get to that, but there was that one saying, uh, there's one quote that was kind of on the, on the ferry dock. It said, if you break the rules, you go to prison.
0: If you break the prison rules, you go to Alcatraz. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And that's it, man. I mean, they got those guys in there and they didn't think they were going to be able to to, you know, get them to stay. They didn't think they'd escape. They thought they would be stuck there. But yeah, 30 years, only 30 years that prison was open because it was incredibly expensive to operate. You know, we got shipped in there for the day. You saw every bit of material, every bit of food, everything they needed had to get shipped on and off the island. And that was very cost prohibitive.
1: Well, yeah, because it really is, like you mentioned, a little island in the middle of the bay. So I never even thought about that. Any type of food that you would need or any type of sustenance or whatever it may be, would have
0: to come by ferry yeah absolutely and that cost a lot i mean it cost way too much for them to operate which is why they ended up having to close the place it just wasn't efficient enough so you, you hear all these stories you hear this grand history but yeah 29 years as a prison is a pretty short period of time i mean a lot of guys you know served 25 to life right and that prison wasn't open all that long
1: why is it so in- inescapable only because it's in the middle of the bay or is it actually the structure itself
0: I think the structure itself was very hard to break out of. You know, there were a lot of attempts for people to get out. Some people made it to the water and drowned. Some people made it to the walls and got shot and killed. It was a very tough place to get. You'd have to really, really work hard just to get to that water's edge. And then if you hit that water, you have to have a whole other plan because the currents are extremely strong. The water's extremely cold. We saw it when we came in there together. I mean, imagine having to hit that water and try to make it to the other end. Interestingly enough, there is a race out here. It's a triathlon where people swim from Alcatraz to shore, but they do it in the most ideal conditions imaginable. And if you're a prisoner just pouncing on an opportunity, those are not going to be ideal conditions for you to try to get off that island.
1: We're just talking, Jeff, of why it was so had the reputation of being inescapable. Not just the fact that it's in the middle of the the bay, but just the structure and just the Mm -hmm. whole way that it's been set up and everything like that.
2: Well, there were actually 14 escape attempts.
1: 14 escape attempts. Well, wow.
2: probably at least two of them were successful. You know, in 1945, one guy actually swam to Fort Point, which is two miles away. And he arrived on the rocks severely hypothermic, so he was captured easily. But he technically escaped from Alcatraz and made it to the mainland. And then there was another fellow who was working in the laundry and he decided he would steal pieces of uniforms and put them together. And one day he put on a sergeant's uniform and just walked down to the pier, got on the launch, thought he was going to San Francisco, but that launch went to Angel Island and his absence was discovered and he was apprehended. But technically he got off the island as well. Then of course, there's the famous escape from Alcatraz group, the Anglin brothers and uh Morris, I think his name was um, portrayed by Clint Eastwood. There's a lot of people who believe they got off the island as well, so you know there could be five.
1: When you go to Alcatraz, you go to to the cell block and you see their actual cells. Now, when I got back that day, I watched Escape from Alcatraz. Now, obviously, oh. if you're a child of the '70s or love movies or whatever, that was still the coolest name escape from Alcatraz and the poster was great it was Clint Eastwood at his toughest yeah and it tells the whole tale and they filmed that in Alcatraz because those cells and where we were the yard and all that stuff we had just been there hours earlier yeah discuss that Casey and 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 Jeff as well how this came to play and let's talk in detail about the guys and, and where they got the idea and all that other stuff
0: yeah, I could jump in and then, and then Jeff, you can jump in and, and support this. Mm-hmm. But I actually truly believe they did get off that island. Uh, there's an incredible documentary. I've watched a lot of documentaries of Alcatraz being somebody that's into the island and grew up here. But the one that I think was the best was called Alcatraz Search for the Truth. And the family of the Anglin brothers actually worked with the Marshall Service. They coordinated for the first time ever to try to put their evidence together and figure out what really happened. And they believe those guys got off that island. And they even had a photo of them in Brazil that a FBI facial recognition expert said he was retired at the time when he looked at it, but he said it with about 99% certainty. It was them in Brazil 30 years after they escaped the island. What I believe they did... Put the cart before the horse.
1: How did they get off the island in the first place? Then I want to go into detail on why you think they actually made it. So let's talk about the guys.
0: Yeah, so what we looked at was they had the heads obviously they put in the beds we saw that what they did was they spent 15 years planning this escape 15 years so for me if you spend 15 years planning escape you better believe they had a plan for what they were going to do when they hit the water so they said that they were painters and they were painting pictures of their girlfriends they used that to get flesh colored paint they worked in the barber shop to get hair clippings they stole materials like uh, life like um you know that they used to make life jackets in a boat They stole an electrical cord that they used to tow themselves out, and they chiseled their way through the vents. So, they had meticulously planned this thing over 15 years so that they could make their move when they had the opportunity to. Jeff, who were these guys?
2: Well, these guys are the Anglin brothers, of course. Um, They're pretty well known. And then the other guy was Frank Morris, and he was the mastermind of this. And he's the character that Clint Eastwood played in the movie. They spent a lot of time, as you said, putting together this raft. They made it out of raincoats and other rubber gear they could swipe from the shops and and stored it up in the rafters over their cell block. And it's amazing that the guards didn't suspect what was going on up there. In fact, some people think the guards were actually paid off to ignore what was going on. On the right night, they got up there in the top of the cell block and went through a vent in the roof. Went across the roof and climbed all the way down to the shore and got in the water, and supposedly made it to Angel Island and from there probably stole the boat and made it to Marin County. You know, a lot of people think that they might have just drowned in the bay. In fact, a lot of a lot of the uh, early suspicion was that they just succumbed to this hypothermia, because usually anybody who went into that bay would just clothes on, no wetsuit. Uh, would become hypothermic very soon. What people don't realize is they built a raft so their torso was above the water. They were in the water only from about the hip joints down so they could kick and propel the raft. And if you're doing that, you could probably make it to Angel Island. It's probably about 1.2 miles, something like that. It's not that far. And if you have a proper current, you could make it. So, I don't think hypothermia is something that, that got to these guys. That's why I think they probably made it to Angel Island. Plus, remnants of the raft were found on the island as well.
0: Yeah, there's, so, there's more to it, Jeff. And what they figured is everything you said is exactly right. But what they did when they hit the water is they didn't use the raft to paddle across the ocean like many people thought. What they did was they used it to traverse just the perimeter of the island. And they had some scent dogs down there and they actually detected their scent both where they hit the water and at another part of the island by a cave. So the belief is they traversed just the perimeter of the island until they could get underneath the dock where the ferry, the last ferry out for the night, because remember, Chris, as we were talking about, you had to boat everything on and off the island and that included staff and guards. Right. So they found an actual ferry schedule in their cell. Mm -hmm. So the belief is, They traversed the perimeter of the island, got under the dock. They had found that they'd stolen an electrical cable that was over 100 feet long. The belief is they tied that to the last ferry out, used the ferry to tow themselves out to sea so they didn't even have to paddle. And then they got picked up by a boat that was floating out in the ocean. They had a friend who was a smuggler. He told this story to the Anglin family on tape. And the boat was sitting there waiting for them in the dark and an off-duty police officer on the shore actually spotted a boat that night floating between Alcatraz and the shore. So there is some evidence to back that up, but the belief is yes, they got towed out. Then they got picked up and then they got flown off to South America, smuggled off the, uh, off the country. Yeah. I
2: don't, I don't buy that one though.
1: Well, let me say something here. And the reason why that I think it's very difficult. So I have a lake, a house on a lake and, When my kids were little, everybody loved to be pulled on a tube, right? On the jet ski. If you didn't blow that tube up to maximum level to where it was sitting right on top of the water, when you started off slow, it would go down. All the kids would fall off, so you'd have to gun it and go fast, and it would have to have a lot of air in it. So if these guys are just blowing it up by themselves, how how buoyant would it be for the ferry to just take them right away? They would be drowning under the water almost as it pulls it.
2: Yeah, and and if you've ever been towed behind a boat, that's exactly what happens. Plus, a lot of these launches were going at least 8 to 10 knots, and that's a lot of water flowing by you and holding on to an electrical cable for the several minutes it would take. I I just think that's not a very plausible theory. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, Right. But it's not very plausible to me.
1: There's something else I wanted to bring up too that I read about afterwards. I, I've become an Alcatraz ex- expert in the last three days <laughs> is that the Anglin brothers grew up in Michigan and said they used to do polar bear swims yeah. when they were kids, which is yeah. being from Winnipeg, Canada. That's what you do when in the wintertime people jump in the water and they swim <laughs> and there's still ice around. So maybe that is one of the, another reason why they can handle that for a mile or two.
2: I guess so. That water's pretty cold. I used to body surf off the cliff house when I was in high school and uh, it would take a half an hour to get into the water because the yeah. pain <laughs> yeah. as your toes and your legs became numb was just excruciating. Of course, we were too dumb to realize there were great white sharks out there, but still, right. it's so bloody cold, man. I don't know how you could do it. Let's
1: back up a bit, though. When, when watching Escape from Alcatraz and seeing how Han- – and obviously, there's a lot of Hollywood juxtaposition in this. But basically, Clint's in his cell. Frank is in his cell. And he stole a pair of nail clippers from the evil warden. And he starts kind of chunking away at the at the vent and sees that the, the cement is kind of loose, And then, of course, we know he steals the spoon and then he makes kind of a shank and kind of continues from there. Is that kind of how it really happened in in your guys' opinion? Or has that evidence been found that that's how they did that at first?
2: Well, they needed some type of metal tool and the cement was pretty brittle. So it wasn't that hard to break through, but you had to use a, a metal tool of some sort. So that kind of makes sense to me.
0: Yeah. And what was interesting is they actually had put both of the brothers right next to each other. Their cells were right next to each other when we were looking at it. And what was interesting is it was said that that they had gotten in trouble in another prison for trying to escape. Right. And they told the warden at Alcatraz not to put these guys together under any circumstance because they're an escapist. And that warden just like completely dismissed it because he thought, ah, there's no way anyone's getting off this island. And so, they were right next to each other. And then Frank Morris's cell was a couple down. So, I mean, there's all kinds of opportunity for scheming with these guys. Mm-hmm. Exactly, And
1: it's interesting too, they also made like cardboard uh, facsimiles of the vent. So they would chip it away and get as much of a hole as they could and then replace it with like a cardboard yeah. ruse, I guess you would say. Which is incredible that they were able to find all of this material. And like you said, they, they, they claimed to be painters, so they were able to get the different shades of paint. All of this, so much patience you would need. And they must have just been hearts pounding yeah. daily that someone was going to find this.
2: I would think so. And, you know, I don't know how long these guys were sentenced to be at Alcatraz, but I mean, spending years just to plan an escape. Maybe you escaped when you only had two years left on your sentence. So why would you risk it? I don't know <laughs> if they were lifers or not. I have no idea. Well,
1: it probably gives you something to do. Well, now they're legends, right? Yeah,
2: they're yeah. legends. Yeah.
1: Another thing that's in the movie that I read was real is that I, I keep calling them. Clint, but you know who we're talking about, he got an accordion and he would learn to play the accordion, quote unquote, for two reasons. One, to mask the sound of the chipping away of the stone and B, to have a large case to put in front of the fake vent.
2: They're pretty smart guys, you know, and I guess if you're desperate, you can be resourceful beyond your own imagination.
1: Now, another question I was going to ask you is is you mentioned, you know, they had the big vent behind their cells and then shimmy up to the top and then get to the roof and then come down the drain pipe. How would they know that those vents are there and that you could access the roof and the and the drain pipe from that vent?
2: I think they did a lot of exploration, right?
0: Yeah, exploration, studying the yard when you get the opportunities to walk outside in that, you know, recreation area. I'm not sure how they would have gotten the exact path they wanted to take, but once they had accessed that inner area between uh, the cell blocks, you know, they climbed up there and they had made somewhat of a makeshift uh, workshop so they could kind of stash their goods and, and work on the things they needed to work on up there. So maybe, yeah, they just, <laughs> all hours of the night, just getting up there, exploring, looking around, figuring out where they can go. A couple
1: other interesting things too is that there's, there was a fourth guy Mm -hmm. who in the movie was called Charlie Butts. And of course, they're all making jokes about that. But in real life, his name was uh, Alan West. He did the same plan. But then when it came down to it, his cement had hardened and he couldn't get the vent off. So he was stuck. He was left behind as the other three went. But then he kind of assisted the FBI with the investigation afterwards.
2: Yeah, I don't know if he got time off for that or not. But uh, yeah, that was really, I don't know if it was a lucky break for him or not.
1: Well, I guess it depends if they made it or not, right? And the last thing that, that I noticed is that he actually it says that they had a concertina, which is a form of an accordion that they used to blow up the rafts, which is kind of like a bellows type Ooh, of thing. So yeah, that might have helped them get the buoyancy they needed for, for your theory, Casey.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, if they had the right buoyancy and a decent tell – then they didn't have to use all the the power, the manpower to paddle out there. And, and, you know, even if they did have to use the manpower, let's just say the tow theories bunk, the boat, if it was still waiting out there, they didn't have to paddle as far as they would have had to paddle all the way to shore.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: A couple other things you mentioned, the paper mache,
1: which is they made this uh, uh, with a mixture of soap, toothpaste, concrete, dust, and toilet paper. <sighs> that, that enabled them to make like the the paper mache molds of, the, of their heads, and then, like you said, they had the flesh-colored paint from painting equipment. And then the barbershop, one of the guys worked the the barbershop, got hair and pieced this together. Now, when we saw them at Alcatraz, they looked like really shitty papier-mache heads. <laughs> but if <laughs> yeah, it was dark and you had the blanket pulled up and you weren't looking for it, obviously it was enough to work.
2: Either that or the guards were in on it. I don't know.
1: You think the guards could have been in on it? Yeah,
2: I guess in the dark... You just need to buy a couple hours,
0: you know, just buy a couple hours to get a head start as the guards walk by, right?
2: Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I'd hate to cast disparaging comments on the guards out there at the time, but it just seems to me that somebody turned away, looked the other way while all this was going on.
1: Well, I, I mean, it's not like those guys really had a lot of money or anything like that, you know, unless unless they were friends with a guard. or something. But you never know them because, once again, the amount of, Fruit that has to line up on the, uh, you know, on your on your slot machine for you to win this prize is seemingly impossible. Mm-hmm. They did do a MythBusters, and they found a uh, raft constructed with the same materials and tools available to inmates. Concluded that it was possible to escape. So you never know.
0: That's incredible. I didn't see that episode, Chris. Yeah, I saw that. It's Two thousand
1: three. We got to watch it after.
0: We should also try to construct some paper mache heads and see which one of us can make the best paper mache head. (laughs) Just get some paint, some hair, the glue, all the stuff. It wouldn't be me.
2: (laughs) I couldn't couldn't do something (laughs) like
0: that. (laughs) I'm the worst, especially out of
1: uh, toilet paper, concrete dust, (laughs) you know, toothpaste and soap. I don't think I'd be too adept at that.
2: No, me neither.
1: Let's go back to what you said a few minutes ago, Casey, about what, about Brazil and the evidence that they did make it. What exactly is is kind of the evidence that supports that theory?
0: So the evidence supporting the theory that they made it is there was a photo taken of them in Brazil on a farm from a family friend. That family friend went and contacted the Anglin brothers' family, sat down with them, explained everything about how they got off, how they got out of the country, the image, etc. The Anglin family was able to present that photo to law enforcement. Now, remember, this is still an open investigation. It is not a closed case. It is still active. It has not been solved. Hmm. Uh, I believe until they hit 99 years of age, they're going to keep it open or until they can prove they're dead. In studying the photos, they said that with a lot of certainty, that was a photo of the Anglin brothers. Uh, No one knows where Frank Morris is currently. The other interesting thing is They did find pieces of the raft and other bits and pieces of of what they had, like the paddles, etc., but they never found their bodies. A body did wash up. I believe it was on Angel Island, Jeff. But what was interesting about this documentary is the Anglin brothers had another brother who was in prison and he passed away in a different prison. They exhumed his corpse, checked his DNA and cross-referenced it with the remains found that they thought could have been washed up from their escape attempt, and they did not match. So it is Hmm. completely and utterly not a match, uh, the remains that were found ashore.
2: Wow. Well, if they ever turn up somewhere, it'd be good to do a little DNA check to see if they match up somewhere. But I I think they made it. Maybe we could get them on the podcast. Yeah.
1: (laughs) If you go on to Wikipedia, there is a lot of different uh, accounts from people that claims to have picked them up in a boat, uh, a deathbed confession mm-hmm. that he and a partner picked up Morris and Anglin's in a boat and transported them to Seattle, Washington. A former inmate said that Clarence's girlfriend had agreed to meet the men ashore and drive them to Mexico. Uh, stories of the Anglin's mother and family getting Christmas cards mm-hmm. to mother from John Merry Christmas. So, you know, who knows if it's real or not, but there is a lot of evidence that I, once again, you mentioned the Loch Ness Monster, you know, it's, it's almost kind of like, are we hoping so much that this is real, that we're going to believe, uh, these things, or is it easier to be like the evil warden and escape from Alcatraz and just go, they drowned. Mm -hmm. That's it.
0: Yeah, everyone wants them to have gotten off, right?
1: Yeah, except for the people that actually work there. It's like there's no way they could get off, so just stop talking about it, right?
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, part of the uh, the thing that kept Alcatraz going was the reputation for being inescapable. But when this happened, uh, that kind of started. That was the death knell for Alcatraz. That Plus, it cost a lot of money to incarcerate people out there. But once the general public realized that somebody escaped and may have survived it, That was kind of over for Alcatraz at that point.
0: That's a good point, Jeff. Yeah. That's a good point. Because I think that if there was any proof at all that they did not escape, they would be shoving that in our face big time because they wanted to keep the mystique alive that nobody could get off that island. Yeah.
2: So they ended up closing it in 1963, I guess it was, something like that, 63.
0: And the escape was
2: 62. Yeah.
1: They said that it basically cost uh, $10, I don't know if that's a month or whatever for a prisoner, where most prisons at the time was $3 a month. So it was way too expensive. And one last thing about the escape. I think that you guys are right on both sides of the coin. I think one of the reasons why people like to go to Alcatraz is a, the historical reason, but b the possibility that these guys escaped, mm-hmm. you know, it reminded me of when I went to Loch Ness and there's a big kind of museum on the shoreline and they tell you the reasons why the Loch Ness monster doesn't exist. And then they tell you, but Here's another reason, and you go out on the sh- on the ship in the middle of the lake, and it's like, you know, it's fantasy. So yeah. it was fun to go there and see, like, if this was true, they really used this cell and used this vent to chip their way out of it, you know? Mm-hmm. But let's talk uh, more about the people who didn't make it out of it and still may haunt Alcatraz with their spirits. Mm-hmm. Let's go to that side of the coin, Jeff. Why don't you take it away and tell us some of the the hauntings and we'll, we can delve into that side of things.
2: There's there's a whole lot of stuff going on out there. There were so many people who died. I mean, officially, the record is not that impressive. There's five suicides. I think there were eight prisoners murdered by other prisoners. And 15 guys died of natural causes. And a few killed in the Battle of Alcatraz in, what was that, 1946? I think that was. But probably there are very, very many more out there. But A point I really want to make about this is what most people experience when you go to Alcatraz, you've experienced something paranormal and you think it's a ghostly experience. But uh, I've estimated that about 80 to 90% of what people think is a ghostly experience is really not. It's paranormal, but what it is is a perception of what we call imprint phenomenon. And imprints are created by living people who experience intense, repetitive, emotional events. And if you can imagine uh, daily life on Alcatraz, that's an intense, repetitive, emotional event, especially if you're being harassed by fellow prisoners and tortured by the guards. And when people experience these things, it lays down on the electromagnetic field of the environment, these imprints, and they can be quite durable. They can be there for even a couple hundred years. Various things will trigger them to play, sensitive people can trigger them to play. So you can walk around Alcatraz and you can hear a slamming door of a jail cell or moaning, sobbing, crying. You can hear gunshots. Some people have even reported hearing cannon shots out there. What they're doing is experiencing imprints and there's probably thousands of imprints out there all over the island in almost every part of every building. There are still ghosts out there too, however. There are ghosts and these ghosts probably are there because of a number of reasons. One, they don't know they're dead. Mm. They simply are staying where they, place they knew when they were alive. Some don't move on, uh, go to the light. So for instance, that's people talking about going to the light because they're afraid of judgment that lays up beyond that light. They don't wanna go and be judged. Some people are just out there because, um, Somehow, this was one of the better places of their lives. They had three meals a day. Mm -hmm. They had medical care. Most of the inmates were fairly safe out there. So, you know, they stayed. So, there's still a lot of ghosts out there. One of the more famous ones, of course, is the Birdman of Alcatraz, Robert Stroud. He lived in the uh, hospital area for many years. One record says as many as 11 years. And his image is still seen there. I have friends who investigated out there with trigger objects, and he's moved objects around in, in this area of the hospital. His image has been seen in the bathtub that still sits out there and a number of other spots too. So he's out well, there. Just
1: to interject, Jeff, uh, with the Birdman, when you go up, and that's, and that's the hospital area that we were talking about earlier where you could feel this weight. Yeah. And I was wondering, like, because his cell is really big, uh, and they said the reason why he was up there for so long is because he had really poor health. So he had to be up there. And I was like, that's pretty brilliant. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. will yourself to get some terrible disease so you can yeah. live basically in the penthouse of Alcatraz. It's better than being healthy and living in the little closet cells that they had.
2: Yeah, and he had a lot of privileges up there, too. That's where he did his uh, bird studies and wrote his books, which got published. And it's said that he had at one time as many as 300 birds living up there. And one of the things that sensitive people discover is they go there and they get this foul stench of bird droppings because the, the rumor is that he never cleaned up after his birds. He just let them poop wherever they wanted to poop and just kind of left it there. That's one of the old legends about this guy. Interestingly enough, he didn't die on Alcatraz. He was shipped off, I think, to Leavenworth and he died there, but. I think he's haunting Alcachez because those were actually some of the best years of his life. He had his bird studies and he had his birds, which were his beloved companions. And it is said that he played chess with the guards at night. Priests would come and visit inmates. He would always track them down and, and sit and talk to them for an hour or two. So he was a very social guy. So this might have been one of his favorite spots. So he's still there.
1: It's interesting. So he did have his birds there because I I thought that I read somewhere that he didn't have any birds in Alcatraz that was
2: back somewhere else.
0: Yeah, I heard like the birds were more of a Leavenworth thing, to be honest. He
2: had Leavenworth and yeah.
0: One point that Jeff made that's really interesting is... You know, there's some legends that that Al Capone, who played the banjo in the prison band, for example, some people said you could hear him playing the banjo in the showers. And Mm -hmm. I thought that was weird too, because Al Capone never passed away in Alcatraz. But what you're saying is there there's an imprint of of a repetition there that could keep it there, right?
2: And that's mostly of what I think people experience. Eighty to ninety percent of what the people might think is a ghost experience are these imprints. And that explains why you might see the apparition of Robert Stroud, for instance, when he didn't die there. He died elsewhere. And the same is true with uh, with Capone's banjo, too. I think he went to Eastern State Penitentiary back in Pennsylvania. I think he died back there. He might have gone down to Wilmington.
1: You can still hear his banjo? Is that kind of the rumor? People
2: claim to, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I've gone into places, Alcatraz and other places, where you get these sound bursts. And these are imprints on the environment that are triggered. And some people are natural. They trigger these things. Uh, sometimes it's just changes in the environment, the humidity and static electricity, things like that.
1: It's interesting. We I mentioned they have that rogues gallery on the wall, and it says you know, what they did and, and how they were arrested. And Al Capone and a couple of the guys... How they got into Alcatraz was they were arrested for tax evasion.
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. Like all the terrible things they did, they got away with, but they screwed themselves in the tax evasion. That's how they got them into Alcatraz. Yeah, they had to pin the tax evasion on them, right?
0: Yeah, exactly.
2: Well, usually Alcatraz was reserved for the really dangerous guys, but they sent Capone there because they wanted to isolate him from communication with his mob, which is still active oh, wow. back in Chicago areas. So they thought that was, the isolation was why he was there. He wasn't a dangerous guy.
1: He was just dangerous to the outside world.
2: Yeah, it was more about the
0: people that could yeah. that could help him get off and yeah. get out of prison, yeah. right? The people that could pay people off and sneak him out. What, what I found most interesting... Like you said, Chris, hospital wing. I felt like as soon as we went up there, I felt odd. I felt D13, the isolation unit, the the hole, as they would call it. I, I remember walking in there and taking a selfie video, and it almost looked like my eyes had dilated. I remember watching you go in there, Chris, and, and you kind of jumped out and said you felt like we were going to shut the door on you and run off. Do you remember that? Yeah, well, because and that, actually, I wanted
1: to go back to the hole before we talk about the haunting of it. So the hole is what you would get, like in the in the movie, if you did anything wrong, if you got in a fight. Mm-hmm. You go in the hole for like 30 days and they put Clint in the hole for 30 days. They give him the hose shower. And I don't know how much truth that is. You guys can answer, but just being in there, take the hauntings out of the equation, just standing in there, creep me out. Cause I'm like, if this door closes, like you would be in complete darkness and you'd lose your mind. And they were talking and we can get into some of the things that they told us about the hole. But what was the experience of the hole like from, from the research you guys have done?
2: It was completely awful because you had a straw mattress that was taken out in the morning and you, it was delivered back to you in the evening. So, during the day, you had nothing to sit on but the steel floor. You know, you've been in these places. I was in 13 also. It's basically a steel box. Yeah, there isn't a wooden floor, tile floor, anything like that. It's a steel, so that just sucks the heat right out of you if you lay down on it. You know, because the heat capacity of metal. Yeah. So during the day, these guys and a lot of them were stripped naked, so they would lay on the floor. And you know, it's cold out there any time of the year. August, it's, it could be freezing cold out there. So they were suffering from this really cold environment, and then they had maybe a bucket for a toilet. And I think some of them have a little sink where they could get a little water out of it. And that's about it. They were isolated. They kept in the dark. They had no communication with the guards or anybody else. So it was complete, total isolation. And the legend is that it drove a lot of people crazy.
1: So would they open the door to give you food? Because there was no tray hole there or anything like
0: that.
2: Yeah, a hatch where they could put a tray through the hatch. No, I don't believe I, I remember seeing anything like that. Did you? I
0: didn't see that. There was like a metal gate that had yeah. kind of normal slats. Oh, yeah, and yeah. then there was another right. solid door, remember? Because when we went into D14, they had yeah. that gate that was blocking us from going all the way in. But in D13, it was open and we were able to get all the way in there. You're right. And you you heard it on the audio tour, and this is one of my favorite stories, is a prisoner that was in the hole, he would tear the buttons off of his uniform and throw them and then try to find the buttons to keep himself from going mad. Hmm. And my first time going there, it was a night tour and it was actually a bit darker than when we were there. And I had a brand new leather jacket. <laughs> and so I reached in my pocket, you know, sometimes jackets come with those extra buttons. Yeah. So I started kind of just chucking the buttons to see if I could get anything, <laughs> but it was, it, you couldn't see anything. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face in there at night.
2: Yeah, supposedly people went crazy in there, and one guy was actually found dead in the morning, and supposedly the examination of the body suggested that he had been strangled. Wow. But he couldn't have done that himself. You can't kill yourself by strangling yourself. And he had this look of fright on his face. So the theory, the rumor is rather, not so much a theory, that there was some sort of evil spirit that penetrated the steel of the walls and went in there and killed this guy. And that may be an urban legend, but that's part of the legend of Alcatraz that these kinds of things happened. When I went into 13 for the first time, uh, I was alone in there and I pulled one of the the outer doors shut. So, it got really good and dark. And I did see two red beady eyes appear up in the upper corner of this thing. No. It really, really freaked me out. Yeah, I really (laughs) don't know where that because there was very little light in there, just a crack in the door jam. <laughs> and when we went in there to film um, Ghost Adventures, this didn't show up, unfortunately. But Zach and I both felt like that room was just moving around, completely rolling around, which of course it wasn't, but it really, really felt that.
1: And that's great. I forgot about that. Zach Baggins is also talk as Jericho alumni. So tell me some of the other things that you uh, discovered and found on the Ghost show that you did in Alcatraz.
2: Well, uh, I was focused mostly on D Block. And of course, we went roaming around up in the hospital and went out in the courtyard. All those places out there went down in the mess hall. Did go down into one of the shops, which is really creepy. Kind of a dangerous looking building to go into because it's in really, really bad shape. But in all of these places, we're picking up sounds of iron or steel doors slamming shut. In fact, when we first started walking towards D Block, We had barely left the entrance of that, the main building, which is like a a lobby and turned the corner to go down to D block. We heard up above us, several doors slamming shut. Hmm. And the park ranger who was with us was completely, he had no explanation for that. He says, the wind does not blow these things shut. So somebody was slamming these doors shut even before we started into D block. So we had a lot of that stuff going on out there. Of course, you get the usual battery drain. I don't know if you guys took instrumentation out there when you went, but yeah, you know, we got that. Did you?
0: Just phones, dude. I got a, I got a story. I, I was gonna drop it. I didn't want to text you this, Chris, but my phone died that night mm. after the tour. I'd sent you the photos. We got on the ferry. As I went to get out my phone to walk back to my office, my phone was dead. And I have not had my phone die in a really long time. And it gets weirder. When I turn my phone back on after I charged it in the car driving home, I had a message from my phone telling me to call back my best friend who died last year. No. And I've gotten it five days in a row since. Wow. No kidding. All five. Wow. Seriously, I've been taking pictures every time. It popped up on my watch. Time-sensitive reminder. Call back Dan Hesselberg, my best friend. He's not alive anymore.
1: Oh, my gosh. That's crazy. It's crazy. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Did you guys use the spirit box at all when you were over there, Jeff, for the show, for Ghost Adventures?
2: They were using REM pods. And, uh, of course, we had the audio recorders. I don't know if we had a spirit box out there at that time when we filmed out there.
1: But, but that's what I mean. Like, Did you use the EVPs or the ovulus or anything like that?
2: Yeah. Got a lot of that stuff. I got um, one that was really kind of freaky. Um when I left there, the last night I left about, we got, I think we got back to the boat dock like 3.30 in the morning, something like that. And I was driving home, and it's, from there it's about an hour drive home. And uh, halfway home, I heard this growl from the back. I was driving an SUV, so it was kind of a big car. I oh, wow. heard this growl from the back, just this roar, roar, kind of moaning back there. And I thought, God, what the hell's that, you know? So I got home and Gosh. realized that something was with me. So I took my recorder out and my K2 meter, which has flashing lights on it, and the lights started flashing. And I usually don't use K2 meters. I think there's something really wrong with electromagnetic field detectors, but I let the thing flash and I had my audio recorder on and I was teasing this spirit. And I said, what do you think of the pretty lights? You know, was, I thought that were pretty lights might irritate this guy. And he growled loudly at me and, and hissed my name. So I brought something home from Alcatraz oh, with me, shit. and he stayed here five nights. It was a war of attrition. I wore him down with banishing rituals and finally went away. And about a year later, I was on one of Zach's other shows, and I played that EVP por- for him and told him the story. And he was He was really freaked out about it because I didn't call him up and tell him soon after this event. Cause he's, he's a busy guy, but anyway, so I brought something home from Alcatraz. So you have to be careful if you go out there. Well, you said five days, i have five days in a row. I've gotten a
0: message telling me to call back my best friend that's passed away. Yeah. I'm serious. It's the weirdest thing I've ever experienced. Yeah. I mean, how could that even be? How do they know how to use phones? This is an ancient island.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah. If you, you need to make a phone call back in their day, you, you needed a dime in your pocket. Well, you know, there may be some sort of a spirit out there that has made a connection between you and your friend, and they're using this electronic device, which they don't really know what it is, but they're using that to communicate with you. That's real possible.
1: Let's talk about a couple of other uh, legends there, Um, Jeff, and just see, or Casey, if if you recognize any of these, uh, the ghost woman of Alcatraz.
2: The ghost woman? Yes. Uh, I haven't heard much about that one. But, you know, there were there were a lot of families living out there, however. It's not beyond reason that a female member of a household living out there died out there. But I don't know much about that one. That,
1: that's a great point that you brought up. There was actually like a small little hamlet, mm-hmm. shall we say, of, of the prison guards and the warden that lived on Alcatraz with their kids and everybody. If you, if you go to mm-hmm. the prisons on the right and on the left, there's... Kind of a little row of condominiums there, which I thought was very interesting.
2: Well, years ago, and this is back in 1990, a long time ago, I had a chance to interview a woman who was living out there as a, she was about 12 years old, something like 10 or 12 years old. Her dad was a guard and her dad attended the 1940 Warden's Christmas party, which is fairly famous because it was at this party that most of the people in attendance, and there were several, uh, saw a a ghost appeared a fellow wearing a Confederate uniform. And there were Confederates incarcerated at Alcatraz during the Civil War. Oh, wow. There were a lot of, of uh, Southern sympathizers in California, and some of them did wear, wear uniforms. And one guy was captured and put out at Alcatraz. So he, his ghost appeared, and many people saw it, including the father of this woman I interviewed. And she was telling me that her dad would tell that story every Christmas during all the years that she was growing up out there, that he was one of the witnesses of this Civil War ghost showing up at this 1940 warden's Christmas party. Now, it would be neat to investigate the house, but as you probably saw, it's just standing there in ruins right now. Yeah. The concrete walls are there, and that's about it. So you can't go in and hunt around for this character. But yeah, uh, that's one of the most intriguing stories because I was able to make a fairly direct connection. Who, When I talked to her, she was quite elderly at the time.
1: It's amazing because, like you said too, I think not just from the prison itself. You mentioned from the natives hunting whatever kind of spirits there was prior, and whenever there's bad vibes and the and the ghost places that I've been to have all been places that had bad things happen, and that's enough to to draw spirits. You know, it's just not or like you said, maybe it's the best time of their life, or there's just a lot of Really crazy things that happen where, where these evil things remain, if for lack of a better term.
2: Yeah, it's a pl- it's a place where a lot of them had power. Also, mm-hmm. people who were murderers, for instance, they had a, they felt they had a lot of power over everybody else. They were invincible because they were good with weapons. Mm-hmm. And, but I think a lot of them stick behind because they are f- fearful about moving on to judgment. And if they had any notion of heaven and hell, they didn't want to end up in hell because Alcatraz was enough of a hell, and they didn't want to go beyond that.
1: It's literal hell, right? Hell on earth. Yeah. As we start to wind down, I think we kind of, are we missing any of the big uh, paranormal ghostly experiences, Jeff, or do we pretty much cover them all? Is there any other stories that stand out?
2: I think those are a lot of the the bigger ones out there. You know, people go to the hospital and we go to the D Block, and you want to track down, you know, the Anglin brothers, those kinds of things out there. But you can have a paranormal experience anywhere on Alcatraz Island. In fact, it's one of the few places that I can literally guarantee a paranormal experience if you just open yourself up, and you don't have to uh, be somebody who's a true believer in the paranormal. You can be a skeptic, in fact, and go out there and have something that is completely mind blowing. Another place is the Hornet in Alameda, the aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. You know, that's another good place where I can literally guarantee a paranormal experience. But anywhere you go on Alcatraz, all you have to do is just have an open mind. Be quiet, roam around, try to separate yourself from noisy people. Uh, when I go to places like Alcatraz, if you have to go on a tour, what I'm I'm usually the guy who lags behind, <laughs> I'm 20 feet behind the group. Because I want to separate myself from 30 other people who are chatting about things. And uh, and you hang back and you'd be surprised what you might experience if you do that.
1: Well, that's what we did, Casey, right? We did the tour, which is great. And then we kind of snuck back up. Because what, what you don't know, if anybody wants to go to Alcatraz that's checking this out, is they don't take you upstairs to the hospital area on the tour. But you can easily go up there. You just have to know that it's there. And that's where the the real haunted feeling was.
0: Yeah, that was the cool part.
2: Yeah. It's a good idea to do some research before you go. You guys probably did a lot to find out the floor plan, basically. You can separate yourself and have some great experiences.
0: Yeah, we did the audio. We came out the other end, and then I basically just walked us back in where we started the tour. Remember, the door was locked, and so I just asked one of the guards that was taking the uh, you know, the audio equipment from people. And I said, how do we get back in? And he said, just get in this elevator, go to level two. (laughs) And that's where it spit us out. And then from that point on, we were largely uninterrupted. No one really around us. Uh, There's a few people in the hospital wing. But then when we went back down to one, uh, you know, we were in the D block basically by ourselves. We went down Broadway basically by ourselves. It was pretty cool. I mean, Mm -hmm. for me, I, I would like to know what you thought, Chris, you've been to a lot of haunted places. How did you feel, you know, in the various places that we went?
1: Well, like I said, like from some of the experiences I had, the, the one that always pops to mind is is one of the, the swamps in Louisiana that had a lot of dead bodies buried. And you could stand in one spot and feel something and take three steps away and it was a different vibe. I really didn't feel any of that. I think I freaked myself out in cell block 13 just because that door shutting just got in my head. But I really did feel that in the, in the hospital because the hospital upstairs, there's an X-ray area. There yeah. There's that other area to the side that was kind of a black room. Remember that? And I don't know if that's where they developed the photos or whatever the hell it was. That area there was like, okay. Because Dr. Luther, who went with us, one of my friends, we were in the Anderson Hotel together. I said, dude, this feels like the Anderson. He's like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the moment we walked out of that area, because there was the catering upstairs, the, the mess hall, it was good. That one spot, though, there's something going on there.
2: Those abrupt changes are really a good telltale sign of that there's something paranormal there. Yeah. And it's very abrupt. You step away, two or three feet away from a cold cell, for instance, and temperature's 20 degrees difference
0: yeah that's very much my experience yeah for sure I, I felt like i didn't feel anything until we hit that hospital wing and i just remember turning and looking at you and be like yeah you
1: <laughs> they get that fight or flight feeling you know yeah now, one last thing i was going to bring up earlier too that i thought was really interesting is i went outside when you guys were listening to the the lady that was opening and closing the doors i went out the front it was almost dark and you could see san francisco you know, it's like the the city by the bay. His journey would would sing. It's right across the bay, and the lights look amazing. And they were saying that, you know, like on New Year's Eve or certain nights of the year when the parties were going on, these poor bastards in the cell would be able to hear the partying and the and basically the sound of freedom coming from from San Francisco, which is only a couple miles away. And I, that to me would be the ultimate. Like, oh come on, man, I got to listen to this too. <laughs> it's so close. It's closer than you think
2: it would be a form of torture yeah to be in a in a cell that you could see the city especially new year's eve or something like that when there are fireworks going off and things like that it would be really tough
0: yeah it'd be tough on your mind i mean freedom is so close you can taste it and and then you just you just can't get out of the cell you can't get out of this island and it, it would be tough and you know i mean it's always been a place of banishment dating all the way back to the native American days. So mm-hmm. it's just, it's just got a murky, murky history with that.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and we were asking earlier, if it took them 15 years to plan an escape, what else do you have to do? It'd be <laughs> almost like a challenge. It's like playing a really <laughs> crazy jigsaw puzzle where it's like, I'm going to take as much time as I need to get this done. Right. Yeah. Last question for you guys. Is there a, 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 an inmate or a couple inmates that are, that are, are the worst to ever be in Alcatraz? Like, is the Birdman the worst? Or was there somebody that went mm. that was even crazier inside of Alcatraz?
2: Uh, I've forgotten the guy's name, but there was one fellow who bludgeoned a guard to death with a hammer down in a workshop. I don't know if that was Creepy Carpus or, or somebody else. That guy must have been pretty bad to take a hammer and just start smashing a guard's head in. So that was a pretty bad dude. That's a
0: bad one for sure. Yeah, it wasn't Carpus' public enemy number one at one point, too. Yeah. Yeah. Alvin
1: Carpus, Good call. Why was he public enemy number one?
2: He killed a lot of people, you know, yeah. and I think he did a lot of kidnapping, too, as well.
1: Ten, I just looked at Ten murders, six kidnappings, a robbery. Edgar Hoover condemned him to life in prison in Alcatraz.
2: There you have it. Oh, there you go. He
1: served the longest term of any Alcatraz inmate at 26 years. So he was pretty much there for the run of Alcatraz.
2: Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'd say he was probably the worst because, you know, Al Capone, by most accounts in there, was was somewhat of a sweetheart. And, and the Birdman was probably past his super murderous, dangerous days when he was in the hospital wing. But, right. yeah, Carpus would probably be the guy. And then, obviously, we, we've we talked so much about it, we didn't even dive into the Battle of Alcatraz. If you're listening oh, yeah. to this, just Google it, look it up. I mean, a lot of people died in that too. Jeff mentioned it briefly. To close it out, what was the Battle of Alcatraz? I asked, but
1: you guys didn't hear me.
2: Yeah, that was in June of 1946. There were three guys who started this insurrection and broke into a storage cabinet, got some weapons, killed a couple guards. It was so bad that the authorities had to bring in the Marines. Oh, wow. And these were guys who just fought World War II and they didn't mess around. They went up on the roof and drilled holes in the roof and dropped hand grenades down into the (laughs) cell blocks. And they were firing into the cell block for a couple of days. This went on for about three days, I believe. It ended up with um, the three ringleaders were killed in the battle. Several others were wounded. Two guards were killed in the battle. And then three other fellows who were sort of leaders, uh, they were captured. Two were executed in the gas chamber at San Quentin. And the other, because he was only 19, was just given a second life sentence. Mm -hmm. So I don't know where he ended up dying. But there was a lot of mayhem going on out there. And apparently the public was quite frightened by all this because of the gunfire. You could hear it in San Francisco going off all day and through the night and the explosions. So, that was a big deal in 1946.
0: Yeah, it got a lot of attention. And and also, Chris, I don't know if you remember when we were in the D-block, if you're standing there looking at those isolation cells, D13 and 14, if you just turn to the right and look at the wall... The whole wall was pockmarked with yeah. bullet holes. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's bullet holes everywhere. The little firebox had holes in it. There was yeah. chips taken out of the walls everywhere. I mean, yep. they were just indiscriminately firing into the deep block, <laughs> basically. It was crazy.
2: Yeah. And if you look around some of the old linoleum, which is still there, you know, it's remarkable, you'll see big long scratches in there, probably from buckshot coming out of the shotguns that were fired. There's a lot of remnants still out there.
1: Last uh, a question for you guys. If you had to take a guess of what happened to Frank, John, and Clarence, the three guys that escaped from Alcatraz, what's your theory about what actually happened? Take all the fantasy out of it and tell me what you think. For You start, Casey, because I know, I know what you're thinking.
0: Yeah, it's my favorite story of Alcatraz, and, uh, and I've looked at it a lot. And like I said, you look at that documentary, it's still up, Alcatraz Search for the Truth, and I'm telling you, these guys got off. They got away. I don't know what happened to Frank Morris, but you know he gets all the credit because he had the genius IQ, but the Anglin brothers were like redneck MacGyvers too. Those guys were smart by their own account. I just, again, 15 years of planning, and they didn't have any idea what they were going to do when they hit the water. No, those guys knew what they were doing. What
2: do you think, Jeff? I think they made it, and they're enjoying pina coladas down in brazil somewhere <laughs> yeah you know. could
1: they still be alive hopefully they're listening to this podcast how, how old would they be at this point in time
2: well that's a good question i don't think they would be alive at this point i think they've got to be alive. Well,
1: Fra- okay so frank was born in 26 so he'd be 96 years old
2: yeah that's pushing it
1: clarence would be 83 he could still be alive man yeah,
2: that's possible that's possible
1: you know so, well yeah 93. Yeah,
2: 1962 it'd be really cool if clarence when he was facing termination would come clean and get a news crew to come in and give an interview about all this. That would be really cool. I think that'd be the greatest thing. Well,
1: Clarence, if you're listening, and I think you are, if you're looking to give your big confession, we're always waiting for you here at Talk is Jerry.
2: That'd be fun.
1: (laughs) Thank you guys. That was awesome. I really appreciate that.
2: Uh, It was a pleasure. It was a lot of fun. All right. Thanks for inviting me.